0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3,
1: 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts
2: report it
1: feels good. Hello again and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's all about astronomy and space science and sometimes it's about animals because they interrupt us from time to time. Uh, My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and today we've got a lot to talk about, Um, a a shameless self-promotion by Fred Watson about a particular new book. Uh, We're also going to talk about a new exoplanet. Now, we've found thousands of them so far, but interestingly, they've all been in our galaxy Until now, perhaps. We'll talk about that. Uh, There was a mystery signal identified uh, late last year. We think we know what it is, and it's not very exciting at all. Could be a broken microwave. Now, we'll have to tell that story now that I've mentioned that. And we're going to um, tackle three audio questions today, Uh, one on dark matter shocker. Uh, another that I found most interesting though uh, about niche locations where we could live if we ever had to leave Earth or maybe if we want to expand, you know, when Earth's just too small for how many people there are. And asteroid mining. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. And joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Uh,
2: Good <laughs> day, Andrew. How's it going? How's it going over oh, there
1: really in Dubuque? It's going very, very well, yes. Enjoying freedom after um, all that lockdown stuff. And uh, (laughs) the funny thing is Judy and I went out uh, on Sunday to do a bit of shopping on the other side of town where we haven't been for over two months. And we we drove through an intersection that's been rebuilt and (laughs) we didn't recognise it. (laughs) And a petrol station has turned up that we... (laughs) There wasn't there before so <laughs> it's just really weird uh and it, you know it's a couple of kilometers away so it's not far down the road but we just haven't been able to go anywhere near that so it's it's been bizarre i'm sure other people have experienced similar things now fred we've got a lot to tackle today but first of all space warp yeah space warp the book the book space warp the book has that been officially launched? Now? Not
2: until uh, next Monday, the first of November. That's when it wow. comes out. It's got words on the back as well, uh, including <laughs> That's some good. very nice um, costs extra. <laughs> well, yeah, there's uh, some very nice endorsements by some famous people, including the, f- the uh, founding head of the Australian Space Agency Megan Clark and the Astronomer wow. Royal for Scotland, Catherine Haymans, uh, Dr. Carl who you will love, has written something nice, as has Alan Duffy and Libby Gleeson, who's a famous children's author. And this is a book Um, for young people. That's why Libby has played her part. Oh, nice.
1: Yeah. Note well, I was not asked.
2: (laughs) Well, it's not me who does this. It's the publisher. They just pick the people. I don't care. No, the publisher. I wouldn't have said anything nice anyway, Fred. (laughs) I'm going to throw in another bit of self promotion Andrew because yes. alongside the book there is the calendar the 2022 Space Warp calendar which oh, look at that. Is, uh because my the book's full of my cartoons and there's lots of them in there. as you did yeah you do your the own calendar things like oh, that Oh look <laughs> Wow. So yes, that will we hope be available. Well, both of them will be available via the Space Nuts website, Space Nuts podcast website.
1: Yes, right? yes, we've got a we've got a Space Nuts shop on our website, so we'll make sure that they're available there. So we'll, we'll let you know when they when they'll pop up, but it won't be long. Uh, but yeah, congratulations, Fred! I know you've been
2: working hard <laughs> on that, and that.
1: Uh, it's very exciting news indeed. So uh, yeah. can't wait to get my free copy. You no, no you'll
2: get one, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> You're on the
1: list. <laughs> um, yes, oh, yeah, right at the bottom. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, it's called Space Warp. By the way, uh, it's a book about astronomy for for young people. So, uh, yeah, if you've got a budding young astronomer or a space traveler in the family, yeah, there you go. Could be for them. Uh, now, speaking of space travelers, um, we are uh, we, we, well. It's not so much about space travel. It's about observing beyond our uh, locality in space. And that is uh, a new exoplanet. Now, to date, we've found several thousand of them, and we continue to find them through the various techniques. But this one, this one is different. This one may well be the first exoplanet discovered beyond our galaxy. Now, most people will probably say, well, yeah, that's no surprise. We should expect that. But still, pretty exciting to, to be the first one, if that's the case.
2: Uh, it is. Uh, the, 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 uh, there's a lot of media hyper around this story, Andrew. <laughs> and, I know. Um, and it probably isn't the first one. Um, there have <laughs> been, been other candidates. The thing is, you know, de- detecting a planet of a star in a different galaxy is a monumental achievement. It is mm. such a, a big thing. It's it's hard enough to to find them in our own galaxy. And, you know, all the ones that have been found are probably within, uh, I don't know, probably within a few hundred thousand, uh, a few hundred, th- sorry, not even a few hundred thousand, a few tens of thousands of, of light years away. Um, there's some, some uh, evidence of, Exoplanets uh, in the region of the galactic centre, which is about 27,000 light years from our solar system. So that's the sort of range that we're talking about. But when you get to galaxies, you're talking about things that are millions of light years away and often yeah. billions. And um, let me sort of set the record straight a little bit because there have been uh, um, candidates uh, for extrasolar solar, sorry, extrasolar planets. Yep, in extragalactic systems. In other words, uh, galaxies beyond our own. There are already about three or four candidates for these, and of course, the difficulty is how do you how do you prove it? Um, and yeah. so, I would preface uh, this story with that uh, note of caution that it may well not be the first, but it's certainly a, a notable achievement, and it's a really interesting observation as well. Um, mm. It's uh, of um, an object, so the, the, let me tell you that the, this has been detected by the uh, the Chandra uh, X-ray telescope. It's not uh, visible light telescopes that have picked this up, uh, uh, but uh, a, a telescope that observes uh, at X-ray wavelengths. And uh, Chandra is a NASA uh, observatory, the sort of X-ray equivalent of the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, what what they've done, the astronomers they've they've been looking. Actually, I think they've looked at several relatively nearby galaxies, um, including um, M51, Messier 51, which is uh, often called the Whirlpool Galaxy because that's what it looks like, uh, and mm. that's about 28 million light years away. Meaning it's it's ten times further away than the Andromeda Galaxy, which is our nearest big galaxy. Uh, so it's uh, it's quite a way off. Um, But using the X-ray observatory, what they've been doing is looking at uh, the X-ray signal from uh, basically binary systems which contain highly condensed objects, by which I mean a neutron star or a black hole or both, um, uh, it's uh, usually the, the, the kind of scenario that we've got, and this is the way that um, most X-ray objects in the sky shine in X-rays, you've got something like a neutron star or a black hole with a companion normal star uh, going around it. Um, and yep. the, the gravitational pull of the neutron star is, is pulling stuff off the, the, the companion. Uh, and it's basically that material whizzes around the neutron star or black hole. Uh, it gets highly heated and glows in X-rays. Um, but now here's the trick. That region where the X-rays are produced is very small. Um, and if you had a planet that was in orbit around one or both of these objects, the star or the neutron star or the black hole, whatever it is, um, if you have a planet in orbit around it, that planet could block off most of the x-radiation coming from that small source of x-rays because of the superheated gas. And okay. it's, so it, be, it, it makes available... The transit method, the standard transit method, which is what we use in our galaxy where a star passes in front, I beg your pardon, a planet passes in front of its parent star. We see a dip in the light, which has a very characteristic shape uh, Mm. in in its uh, light profile, Uh, and that demonstrates that there is a a planet in orbit around the star, and and usually what you have to do is watch this for several uh, transits. I think three is the minimum uh, before you can guarantee that you've found um, that you have found a a, a planet. Um, this is slightly different because the the X-ray source, unlike the, the the parent star of a planet in our galaxy, which is much bigger than the star, so all you get is a dimming of that star's. Like, beg your pardon, it's much bigger than the planet. I'm sorry, <laughs> get the words right. The star is much bigger than the planet in our galaxy, and so as the planet crosses in front of the star, it's like the starlight merely dims. But with mm. this situation, the x ray source is smaller than the planet, and so when the planet passes in front of it, it basically switches off the x rays. Ah, um, wow. and then they come back on again, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, there is. Uh, there is a known x-ray source in m51 the whirlpool galaxy its name is m51 uls1 uh, and that is either a black hole or a new- neutron star with a companion star um, which is about 20 solar masses um, and that's basically is what causes the, the the bright X-ray emission. So all that's been modelled from the X-ray yeah. emission. But now um, what you've got to do is monitor this and look for um, a planet or something blocking it off. And that's what they found. Uh, it's um, a, 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 basically a dimming of the light. Uh, it lasted about three hours Uh when the X-ray emission fell to zero. And so Mm. that's what they are interpreting as a planet around M51 ULS-1. Uh, And they guess it's about the size of Saturn and think that it would orbit the black hole or the neutron star about twice as far away from uh, from the neutron star as Saturn is from the Sun. The, the the really depressing bit, Andrew, is that based on those calculations, the next time it's going to block out the light of the X-ray source is in 70 years. So oh. Oh, we've got a long wait before you can actually uh, guarantee that this is definitely a planet. Um that's frustrating yeah very frustrating it's been so you know other people have suggested maybe it's actually a cloud of gas and dust that's passing in front of the x ray source um they say that the the characteristics of that dimming of the light uh or the x rays from m fifty one u l s one is is more consistent with a solid object like a planet um mm. there's a very nice comment uh by one of the authors who's at uh, Princeton University in New Jersey. We know we are making an exciting and bold claim, so we expect that other astronomers will look at it very carefully. Uh, This is uh, Julia Bernson. Uh, She says, we think we have a strong argument, and this process is how science works. Yeah. It must be
1: frustrating when you you find something and then realise you're going to have to wait 140 years to get an absolute confirmation. that's right. I dare say we'll find other candidates before that happens. Yeah, I think we might. uh, Why is it so difficult to confirm an exoplanet in another galaxy? Is it because when we look out, everything's just conglomerated into one mass? Yeah, well, that's that's partly it. Telling one from another is, is the issue. Yeah,
2: so that's why you've got to. So if you're looking, if you were just looking at straightforward stars, you wouldn't have a chance mm. because at the distance of M51 they stars, is the bright ones will show up individually but most stars just melt into a haze, a bit like the way we see the Milky Way, that yeah. haze of starlight but um, X-ray sources are different they are, they're First of all, they're relatively rare within a galaxy, so you can pick them out easily, because they are so bright uh, in X-rays compared with the background from the galaxy itself. There's probably other aspects I'm not uh, that, you know, that cluey about the details of X-ray astronomy, but I think it's likely that you would be looking for a different region of the X-ray spectrum for, for, for the, the kind of observations that we're talking about here from from the what what we call the extragalactic X-ray background, things of that sort. So, mm. um, so it it it's a difficult task, and that's why you need something really extraordinary, like uh, an X-ray source in order and, and a tiny X-ray source, which is what this is, in order to have some evidence of a the planet there.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully, but yes, as we've mentioned, it'll be a while <laughs> before Hit we can for this one. That's right, probably confirm yeah. it. But um, yes, uh, look, it, logic says that there are probably squillions of exoplanets in other galaxies, just like there are in our galaxy. We, we've got planets around our star. We've found planets around many other stars in our galaxy. It stands to reason that the the pattern repeats. Yes, that's so, right. It, one one day soon, I'm sure, we will confirm an exoplanet in another galaxy and everyone will go, yeah, we thought that would be there. You know, it, it, it'll be exciting, but it will also be expected. That's how I anticipate it going. So, And, yeah, as you said, we've probably already discovered them. We just can't
3: absolutely
2: yeah, confirm, can't confirm it, it yet. That's right. There, there are other candidates that come from things like gravitational lensing and, or gravitational microlensing and things of that sort. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. We wait with
1: interest. We do. Of course. Mm, can't afford the interest, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts and you're watching us on YouTube if you choose to, uh, where you can see the cover of Fred's new book, which he just showed us, if you want to take a look at it, uh, with Andrew Dunkley, of course. Uh, there he goes again. <laughs> and <laughs> Professor Fred Watson.
3: Roger, you're
0: space nuts.
1: Now, Fred, before we move to our next topic, I got a lovely email this week and uh, it, you know, basically asking for help. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's give them help. Uh, hi, guys. I'm an avid listener of your podcast and have just started working in the uh, uh, Marketing for the University of South Australia Innovation and Collaboration Centre based in Adelaide. And that's where they um, run the Venture uh, Catalyst Space Program, uh, which uh, he tells me is a six month startup incubator for local and international companies in the space sector with the support of the South Australian Government Space Innovation Fund. And right now, um, this is from Daniel, he tells me that they're um, a- accepting applicants for the 2022 program. Now, that closes on November the 28th. And uh, he was hoping we could mention it to our listeners and, uh, and maybe get that message out to people who, who could uh, take advantage of this uh, wonderful opportunity. So uh, there you have it. If you're interested in this six-month um, program, Uh, for companies in the space sector. Uh, get in touch with uh, the University of South Australia's Innovation and Collaboration Centre, based in Adelaide, and, and see what you can do for their 2022 program. Uh, I'm sure Daniel will be excited to hear from you, and uh, you never know where it might lead. So, uh, good work, Daniel. Thanks for getting in touch. More than happy to give you a, a little plug on that program, and and uh, wish you all the very best. And please stay in touch. Let us know. Let us know how it goes. Sounds fantastic. Uh, Adelaide's becoming quite a centre for space in Australia, isn't it, Fred? Very much
2: so, yes, with the Space Agency having its headquarters there. And, um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, South Australia, of course, has a long history of space activities going back to the Woomera days. Uh, and they've, yeah, they've picked up all that again with uh, this new wave of, uh, of investment in space uh, projects. And the-
1: yeah, I, I still love how, you know, we have... Um, sort of taken in the space program in Australia and our very first rocket still lies on its side rusting behind a chicken wire fence. So I think that is the that just underlines it for me in terms of Australian's Australian space. I think we'll improve on that. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, and what's more, it was an American rocket and the kangaroo burned off so you can still see the American USA underneath. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Let's move on. All right. uh, now, uh, last December... Uh, there were media reports of a uh, mystery signal that um, we've been trying to unravel and it uh, came from a, a place that sort of got people scratching their heads. Well, now we think we know
2: what it is. Over to you, Fred. I might, I might actually read what I wrote about it in, um, in this book because <laughs> I'd wrote about this. In December 2020, reports emerged that a signal had been detected at the Parkes Observatory in New South Wales in 2019, three years into the Breakthrough Listen project. That's a project to, uh, to, to, to listen for uh, extraterrestrial signals. dubbed yep. BLC one for Breakthrough Listen candidate 1, the signal came from the direction of the nearest star, Proxima Centauri scientists are still working to identify its origin, but comment that it is 99.9% likely to be human-made interference of some kind. So I wrote right. this about three months ago, and now they've agreed that it is. <laughs> yeah, um, I, All the pundits that I spoke to said, look, it's got to be human interference. Uh, but there's a little bit more to the story. Um, uh, the, the the signal had, had all kinds of... Uh, similarities with what you might expect uh, an extraterrestrial signal to look like, um, and and in fact, uh, pe- you know, people have been looking with the Parkes radio telescope. Uh, at Proxima Centauri for a long time because it's a flare star. It uh, flares out bursts of energy like our sun does, but because it's a a red dwarf star, they're much more energetic. Uh, Mm. And so it's one that uh, has been studied. Uh, We also know that um, Proxima Centauri has in orbit at least one Earth-sized exoplanet. uh, And the, the, the suggestions... Here that uh, that planet is, you know, in the same way as the Earth uh, experiences uh, space weather from the solar flares, uh, the space weather around Proxima Centauri B—that's the name of the planet—is pretty energetic, and um, most I think most pundits think that would rule out the um, evolution and development of life. Um, But yeah, it's the nearest. It's the nearest neighbor. Uh, it's a, a tele, a, an object that's very easy to observe from our southern skies. And so um, the breakthrough listen team uh, have uh, essentially concentrated a little bit on uh, on Proxima Centauri. And sure enough, this signal came in. Uh, it's, it reminds me a lot, uh, Andrew of the Wow signal in uh, yeah. you know um, that nobody wrote wow uh but the the reasons why the uh signal could be artificial uh have been listed in a very nice conversation uh, piece uh, by Danny Price, who's one of the authors. He's at Curtin University uh, in Western Australia. Um, so, Danny lists the uh, the things his conversation piece. If you want to look at it, is called "A Mysterious Signal Looked Like a Sign of Alien Technology," but it turned out to be radio interference. <laughs> That's telling it like it is. Uh, what Danny says is that um, that they only saw BLC one when they were looking towards Proxima Centauri and didn't see it when they looked elsewhere in what are called off-source observations. Uh, whereas normally, interference leaks into the telescope from everywhere. So that was mm. one thing. Second point is that the signal it, it only covers one narrow band of frequencies. Um, and, you know, natural astrophysical sources are usually over a much wider range, normally, uh, clouds of cold hydrogen aren't, but normally, you would get a much wider range. And, and the, the thing that really made it intriguing was that the signal drifted in frequency um over a fi- five hour period and that's sort of what you would expect from uh, a signal coming from a planet orbiting another star because of the doppler effect you get this doppler shift yeah. uh because of the relative movement between the earth uh, and the star actually the earth's movement as well contributes to that um and it's it persisted for several hours that's what they said however uh, They have demonstrated, uh, um, and I think it's—I think it's a summer project that um, was being done by a PhD student, Uh, Sophia Sheikh, I think is the name, uh, the way her name is pronounced, Uh, a a PhD student at Penn State. Uh, in the USA uh, who ran lots and lots of tests which have basically have what thrown what has thrown out the exO the techno signature idea that which is of course a signature coming from a technological the technologically advanced society um, she has done this by going across the parks receiver's complete frequency range and actually found. Look-alike signals signals ah. that are similar to blc1 which right. do appear in off-source observations um, and so it suggests that it's actually some sort of peculiar radio inter- interference and what they're saying and this is me quoting directly from Danny's article, we don't know exactly where BLC1 was coming from or why it wasn't detected in off-source observations like the look-alike signals. Our best guess is that BLC1 and the look-alikes are generated by a process called intermodulation, where two frequencies mix together to create... New interference. If you've listened to blues or rock guitar, you're probably familiar with intermodulation. I have to say, when I'm playing blues guitar, I don't, I don't intermodulate. Andrew, as you'd you'd expect, (laughs) mainly because I don't use an amp. purely acoustic, when a guitar amp is deliberately overdriven, i.e. when you turn it up to 11, uh, intermodulation adds a pleasant-sounding distortion to the clean guitar signal. So BLC1 Mm. is perhaps just an unpleasant distortion from a device with an overdriven radio frequency amplifier. Well, that's disappointing. (laughs) It is, isn't it? (laughs) But
1: not unexpected. It reminds me of a story, and I don't, I can't remember the details, but some years ago there was uh, some kind of uh, discovery made, and then uh, they eventually figured out it was like a broken microwave
2: oven. Ah, yes. Do you remember uh, that? Yeah, It wasn't broken. And this is Parks as well. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So this um, was in the early history of the detection of fast radio bursts, which are signals that last a few mic- milliseconds, uh, which are now. Generally thought to be coming from flares on neutron stars. That's the, I think that's the consensus these days. But in the early days, nobody had a clue what they were, what they were. And mm. they found um, a whole succession of these. Signals exactly like the, the, what we might call the classical fast radio bursts from the Parkes radio dish. They had this same intensity profile. They they um, had a phenomenon called dispersion, which is actually something that happens to radio signals as they pass through space. The, the low frequency uh, signals. Let me get it the right way around. I always get this the wrong way around. I think the lower sequence, lower frequencies come last they do they're slower so that's dispersion as it they pass through space and the the, these signals at parks mimic that they had the dispersion um so everybody thought they were natural except for one thing or uh, sorry um cosmic coming from space excuse me except for one thing which is that they all always turned up at lunchtime (laughs) (laughs) and anything that's you know that comes up on a period of 24 hours must be something to do with the earth so they started then looking at nuclear tests and jet aircraft interference and it took a long long time and i've talked to one of the guys who who actually discovered what it was uh john sarkisian a great friend and colleague at uh, the park's dish yeah um it what it turned out to be was people, um, they, 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 I should say, they ran tests on all the microwave ovens in the district and, you know, nothing that turned them on and off and everything, not got anything that re- resembled this thing. And I should say they gave it a name. They called them peritons, which is a fictitious animal invented by an Argentinian uh, a fiction writer. Uh, so the peritons um, it turned out to be caused when uh, somebody's cooking a meal and that the they the, the, the think that the cooking's done enough, but the microwave's still running, and they press the door open button and it cuts the oh. microwave, but it lets the the radio radiation as it decays. Expand into uh, you know into space. Um, that's they did Several tests, and that's what it was. I think it was John Reynolds
1: so, as a person. So that that's what would happen where it's finished cooking and it's giving you the five warning beeps or however many it is, and you open the door before the beeps stop.
2: No, it's more the radiation's escaping. It's more that you that you you say oh I, I, you're looking through the window and you've got five minutes on the on the timer, but after three and a half minutes it's cooked and you press the the door open button then, so oh. the, the magnetron is still generating the microwaves. The door opens, the microwaves escape into into space, and they've got this frequency drop exactly as you'd expect. So
1: that's that, and so that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, and it's not advised either, is it?
2: We shouldn't do it that. Shouldn't, it's very naughty, that's right. And so yeah. um, it's now forbidden.
1: Which is up. why it gives you the warning beeps. Don't open the door till the beeps stop. That's what that's all yeah, about. That's, it's not to tell that, you
2: your food that, That's right, yes, to, yeah. Let, mm. Leave it up to the beep stop. Another important safety
1: tip from Space Nuts. Though. Indeed, oh, well. yes. <laughs> Look mm. after your body. All right. <laughs> so the the mystery signal, not such a mystery. Not a microwave oven thing, but uh, certainly some kind of interference of, of experience. some sort, That's right. <clears> yes. <throat> mm. All right. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. <laughs> Space nuts. Now, if you are on social media, particularly Facebook, don't forget we have uh, a couple of pages. We've got the official Space Nuts Facebook page, which you're uh, more than welcome to join and uh, to follow. But we also have a a, um, a listener created Facebook page, which we administer, but it's it's basically driven by the listeners, and it's the Space Nuts Astronomy Science Podcast Group. But if you do Space Nuts Podcast Group in your search engine on facebook you'll find it and that's where uh, well over 2000 listeners now get together regularly to talk astronomy and space science Uh, they ask questions of each other they come up with theories and answers and ideas they share photographs some people are sharing their astrophotography which is fantastic And you can uh, be a part of that group just for the fun of it. And you can, um, I just spotted a message from my brother there that said, oh, my God, Andrew, did you tell your Space Nuts listeners about the jet engine under Paul's place that caught fire? Yes, I did. Yes. Uh, It's all on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, so check it out. It's a a fun place and it's for you. We don't get very involved. I might occasionally drop in a comment, but it is for you so you can talk to each other. All right, Fred, let's uh, tackle some questions. Oh, good grief, shock, horror. This one's about
3: dark matter. Hello, Andrew and Fred. This is Michael in Evanston, Illinois, in the United States. I have a couple of questions about dark matter that mainly relate to Einstein's famous equivalency principle with respect to matter and energy, the E equals mc squared formula. Is there a process that we know of that converts dark dark matter into energy, like for example around a black hole? Is dark matter part of the matter that results in the uh, terrific Energy that's released. I think that's it. Thank you. Love your show.
1: Take care. Okay. You too. Michael, thanks for uh, the question. Lovely to hear from you. So, basically, asking if there is a process that converts dark matter into dark energy is that what he said? Uh, No, that
2: converts dark matter into energy. Um, Yeah. um, In the same way that, uh, you know, the nuclear process is inside the, the sun convert uh, matter into energy. But in that case, mm-hmm. it's normal matter. Um, that's a really good question. I, I might just start uh, with a comment from Pedant's Corner, <laughs> which is where all astrophysicists sit. Um, Einstein's equivalence principle is not about um, matter and energy. It's not about E, MC, uh, e equals mc squared. Uh, it's actually about something different, and it's what led to the general theory of relativity. It's the equivalence of gravitational and inertial mass. In other words, that uh, it's the, the, the thing that leads to the idea that gravitation, gravitation behaves like an acceleration. Uh, that's the equivalence principle. I think formulated in, if I remember rightly, 19, I think he thought of it in 1907 and formulated it in 1912 in its, in its detail. Uh, but it was in 1905 that E equals MC squared uh, was written down. That's the equation that, uh, exactly as Michael says, relates the uh, uh, mass of an object to its energy content that's the best way to put Mm. it and you and i have discussed um, some of the few instances of converting it the other way around going from energy to matter uh, which can happen in particle accelerators I believe uh, that's in the past uh, when we've talked about this, Andrew. But um, it's a really intriguing idea that uh, are there processes like nuclear fusion, for example, or nuclear fission, uh, that relate to dark matter and energy? And I'm not sure what the answer is to that. My guess is that um, uh, there is that, that, that there may well be um, one. The reason why I say that is that uh, people have put forward uh, suggestions that if you have dark matter particles colliding, they can annihilate, and what you get is gamma rays. Uh, And um, in fact, people have looked for gamma rays with a particular spectrum profile uh, coming from the centre of our galaxy where we think the dark matter is at its densest and that's where you would expect dark matter particles to collide uh, and mm. release these these uh, gamma rays. So that would be uh, an example of exactly what Michael is suggesting, uh, the conversion of matter to energy, albeit dark matter, something that we only see through its gravitational interaction. Um, but yeah. so far, there haven't been any detections of gamma rays with the particular profile that would be expected from annihilating dark matter particles. OK, so the mystery continues. It does.
1: <laughs> mm. All right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Again, uh, lovely to hear from you. Let's move on to a question uh, from Patrick.
3: Hello, Andrew and Dr. Fred. My name is Patrick and I live in New England in the USA. Um, I was wondering if there are niche locations in the solar system that would be Goldilocks locations. For example, the poles of Mercury where... The one side is very hot, the other side is very cold, but um, it would be possible to live in between them and use the temperature difference to power all kinds of things that are needed for life support. Um, I'm also thinking of the same thing in other places. Um, so um, if you could just go through the solar system and tell me where people might be comfortable, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs>
1: hmm. Interesting.
3: Yeah, that, that's a good thought.
1: Uh, obviously, Earth is perfect. It's, uh, well, you know, it's not. But uh, in terms of uh, liquid water position in the in the solar system, um, distance from the sun, uh, everything about it just falls into place for uh, the proliferation of life. And we can, you know, walk around freely and breathe the air and drink most of the water, <laughs> some of the water. Um, but If we were to move somewhere else, we would have to find niche locations that would be uh, amenable to a reasonable existence. How do we find them and are there any that are,
2: you know, the way he describes? Well, you're right, Andrew, that the Earth is perfect. That's because we evolved here. Um, Yes. And there's nowhere else that's, you know, that's got the same uh, atmospheric pressure and chemical compositions in its atmosphere as well as the right gravitational force and the right temperature. Um, I mm. think what uh, Patrick's referring to is um, what we call the Goldilocks zone, the idea that there is a region around every star uh, which where the temperature is not too hot, not too cold, but just right for liquid water to exist. Uh, and that is um, where we sit in our solar system. Um, But yes, niche Goldilocks zones. uh, I I think uh, Patrick's right about the Terminator region of Mercury. That will be an area where the temperature, the the radiative, radiative heat from the sun... Would make for a, a more benign surface temperature than either the, the sun-facing side or the or the dark side. Um, the trouble is, of course, Mercury does rotate on its axis, uh, albeit slowly, and uh, that. Position changes but that would be hmm. i guess one example of the kind of goldilocks zone that he's finished thinking about perhaps a more interesting one though is the upper atmosphere of venus uh, where you oh. know venus's surface temperature is 460 celsius or something but when you get high in, high in the cloud deck um, both the pressure and the temperature become much more amenable to to, to life forms, um, and that's why there was all that excitement last year about the detection of um, uh, the, a, a, th- a supposed signal, radio signal from phosphine uh, in the atmosphere of Venus, because phosphine is a is a bit of a biomarker. It's not a guaranteed mm. one, but it's got a suggestion. In in fact, that has now gone away. The uh, I, th- I think the um, signal turned out to be probably was it carbon monoxide i think rather than phosphine anyway it's it's one of those things it's still a bit controversial but but yeah. it's uh- yeah, it, it was it was thought to be perhaps the first signs of life in the upper atmosphere of Venus. We don't think that's the case now, but that the fact remains that Venus's upper atmosphere may have conditions which would be suitable for life. When you look okay. elsewhere in the solar system, once you get beyond the Earth, then you're you're, you're outside the traditional or the, the classical, if I can use that word again, uh, Goldilocks zone. Because when you get to Mars. Uh, it's only infrequently that you can find temperatures on the surface of Mars where uh, liquid water could exist. And the problem there is the pressure is so low, uh, the atmospheric uh, pressure is so low that it, it just tends to evaporate. Um, yeah. uh, I, I was thinking, though, slightly outside the box, um, Jupiter's moon EO has uh, lava lakes um, there, that the heating of Eo comes from the the tidal forces exerted on it by by Jupiter. Um, and so you could regard Eo perhaps as a kind of quasi-goldilocks zone. And it may well be that in the, you know, we've got these water worlds out there as well, with with a layer of ice over a liquid water ocean, over a, a sort of warm um uh, rocky core. Uh, maybe in those oceans uh, there are temperatures that approach uh, the temperature at which um, living organisms could could form. Um uh, it's it's the internal heating and the and the pressure of the ice above that that gives rise to the fact that the water is still liquid. It's probably still very cold. Uh mm. you know below what we would normally think of as freezing point but if there are minerals in there like perchlorates that uh, that act as natural antifreeze plus this pressure effect reducing the freezing point um yeah maybe there are creatures that could survive those conditions. Mm. So, Fascinating. yeah, probably a few niche places. A Good
1: question. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Not, not so good for humans, though. But uh, I, I, the, while you were talking, I was looking down at a book I read recently by Kim Stanley Robinson called 2312. And it uh, had a human colony on Mercury. And they lived in a city called uh, Terminus, I think. <laughs> and it was on a rail. And the rail got expanded by the heat of the sun and pushed pushed the city along (laughs) around the planet. And they were always just on the shadow side of Uh, the Terminus
2: fantastic,
1: or the Terminator. (laughs) And the city just got pushed around and around and around the planet and everyone lived happily in the Goldilocks zone of of Mercury. So that's how Kim Stanley Robinson solved the problem. Very good. um, hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting puzzle. Uh, If we do ever have to move, uh, we will have to be ingenious about it, that's for sure. Yeah,
2: we're likely to move the other way, though, aren't we? We're, we're, as the sun gradually expands into expands. its red, red giant phase, we're going to be... Yes, we, de- we definitely need to go the go other way. The other way yeah. so, yes. yeah.
1: Hopefully by then, if humanity still exists, we'll be able to go beyond yeah. our own solar system and perhaps beyond our own galaxy and well, you know get out there and find something like like Earth that would be hmm. worth living on. There's got to be one somewhere, surely. You would think so. (laughs) Time will tell, but maybe not in our lifetime. All right, one final question. We'll throw in a bonus question today. Um, I'm not sure who this is from, but I know they're in Melbourne.
0: Hello, Fred and Andrew. I just finished listening to your latest all questions episode, and I thought I really need to get my own question in before singing becomes the norm, and I am forever excluded due to my musical ineptitude. I'm curious about the orbital dynamics of asteroid mining. Moving rocks just to mine out a tiny proportion of their contents is very expensive. And if you do it in space, even more so. Why not crash a bunch of asteroids into the moon and mine the fragments we want? Friend of the program 16 Psyche comes to mind. Can we cheaply and reliably knock 16 Psyche off its orbit in such a way that it will graciously impact the moon? Or... Would we vaporise all the interesting stuff? Would it be better to make it enter low Earth orbit? Can it be done safely? Thanks a lot. I love the show and it has made all of Melbourne's lockdowns, all six of them, so much more bearable. Greetings from south of the border.
1: <laughs> uh, lovely to hear from you and uh, so pleased that you're, um, you're out of lockdown now, I believe, or very soon, and, uh, yes, uh, the most locked-down city in the world, as it turned out. So, um, yes, it must be a, an incredible relief to uh, to be out of jail. Uh, could we crash 16 Psyche or any other asteroid into the moon by glancing it off its current path and then mining the, uh, the refuse? Is that... Um, <clears throat> Feasible? Is it a good idea to crash stuff in, in
2: the moon? No, it's not. I
1: mean, we've done it with spacecraft, <laughs> yeah, let's be real, but, but something as big as an asteroid? Yes,
2: yeah. Um, yeah, so 16 Psyche, uh, one of my favourite asteroids, because I did research on its orbit when I was a master's student 100 years ago. Uh, we now know it's a metal asteroid. Um, we know it's 200 kilometres in diameter, and there's absolutely no way that with present Technology, we could move that from its orbit in the main asteroid belt. Far too massive. Um, there, there have been suggestions for moving small asteroids, and we're talking now about objects maybe a few meters across, which might still be rich in uh, in rare earths and uh, and um, perhaps metals and other minerals. Um, that was discussed. Probably a decade ago, uh, about the time when NASA was, you know, talking about retiring the space shuttle and what they were going to do next, uh, moving asteroids around was uh, one of the one of the things that was thought to be a good idea, with the possibility of mining them. Now, the thing about mining asteroids is that for most of the stuff that's on it, the place you want to use it is in space. Um, you don't really want to bring it back to Earth or cr- crash it into the Moon. <clears throat> you want to do no. uh, what's called uh, um, ISRU, uh, in situ resource use. It's a big, t- it's a pretty big. Um, uh, a, a iconic term that's appearing now in things like the space agency's roadmap uh, here in Australia um, and I think that's you know that's really the way the space industry will be going it'll be looking at things like um, uh, remote mining of asteroids 3d printing using the materials that are that are uh, 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 are excavated and 3d printing things like rocket components as well as uh, catalyzing uh, sorry uh, electrolyzing some of the uh, water ice that might be found into rocket fuel, all done in situ rather than bring it back to Earth. Um, mm. uh, the the there is a mission about to be launched. Just talking about moving asteroids, the Dart mission. Is it Dart? Yeah, this is the one. Dart.
1: Yeah, the double asteroid that's, redirection that's test. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a NASA plan to uh, go up there and um, try and deflect uh, an asteroid, six five eight zero three Didymos.
2: That's the one. Off yeah, offline. Thanks for checking checking <laughs> up on that. No, it's because it's an it's a double asteroid. It's a binary asteroid, and. Mm. Um, The idea is to accelerate one component, the satellite, uh, whose name I can't remember, um, the satellite asteroid, uh, deflect that by a small amount just to give it a tiny acceleration um, and see what happens. Because we haven't, you know, this is technology that we might need one day to move the orbit of an asteroid that threatens the Earth, which is a much bigger uh, issue. Uh, And um, it's never been tested. Um, so, moving the asteroid's moon or accelerating it by a few, even a few millimeters per second per second, that would be an achievement. Why are they doing it with a binary asteroid? Because that's the easiest way to measure if you have generated the acceleration that you're looking for. Mm.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, they're using uh, the DART spacecraft and the DRACO, the Didymos Reconnaissance and Asteroid Camera for OpNav. Uh, which is an imaging indus- instrument so they can see whether or not they were whether successful works,
2: that's right.
1: and, uh, yeah, whether or not they'll be able to um, actually move this this asteroid and, and yeah, it, it's a very important test for keeping the planet safe from a potential future impact. So, um, yeah, we're really only in the very early yeah. stages yeah. of testing this this kind of science uh, so deflecting objects to, to hit the moon or um, as which Fred, And I agree on it's probably not a good idea. Um, It's way beyond our science at this point in time. But uh, we're we're working on it, but more for the safety of the planet than
2: for the mining industry. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And,
2: and in fact, the the last question – sorry, Andrew, to interrupt. Um, The last question about uh, could you put um, 16 psyche into low Earth orbit, I think that would be catastrophic for human life on Earth if we did that. Okay. (laughs)
1: So, another important safety yeah. tip yeah. on space: yeah. do not
2: put asteroids into orbit around not big the big ones like that. No.
1: No, not not on your life well you probably wouldn't have a life after that uh, but yeah thanks for the question no, it's a really interesting discussion uh, it always throws up some um, some amazing thoughts uh, and thanks to everyone who contributed uh, to the program this week it brings us to the end uh, By the way if you do have questions for us um, you can always send them to us via our website spacenutspodcast.com uh, there's a little ama link on the top where you can send us email questions or record a voice question or you can go to the right hand side of the home page where it says send us your voice message so i'm pretty sure that's self-explanatory as long as you've got a device whether it's a, a tablet or a phone or a computer or a laptop or something that hasn't been invented yet with a microphone you can uh, send us your voice questions don't forget to tell us who you are where you're from we love we love to know where you where you're coming from uh, both literally and figuratively uh, so, yes, send us your questions. Uh, we are at the end of yet another episode, so thanks for joining us and thank you as always, Fred. Uh, it's it's a great pleasure. Good to talk and we'll
2: speak again soon.
1: And good luck with the um, the book launch. Yay, next Monday. There it is again. <laughs> Space, War. Space War. We're going to make it into a TV series. So, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Fred. We'll catch you next See week. See you later. Bye-bye. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and hello to Hugh in the studio. I hope you've solved that Rubik's Cube, which you've been working on for the last couple of weeks. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for joining us. Uh, We look forward to to your company on the very next episode. Bye-bye.
0: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple
1: Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com.
0: This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.